0: Amen. How is everyone doing this morning? All right. There's about half of us that are awake, but hopefully, hopefully you guys will wake up at least halfway through the message. So um, towards the end, hopefully it'll start getting good. But um, I want to just welcome you all this morning to the house of the Lord as we're going to dive into God's word. This is this is the church. Um, And when I say this is the church, I'm not talking about the building, but I'm talking about all of you inside the church. Um, we collectively as individuals make up the body of Christ. Um, and we're going to take a look today. Um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to share this morning. And this, this thought just kind of kept coming. Um, I, I spent a week at a conference. Uh, and I, I've been seeing a lot of other churches. And I have a lot of friends who are in ministry in other churches. And this, this concept, this idea of what is the church supposed to be kept coming back up. And just kind of kept like, there's, we, if we were, were to look at, there's probably hundreds of thousands of church live streams happening this morning from all different denominations, all different places, cultures, um, ethnicities, uh, generational gaps. And a lot of these churches look very different. And so the question came, is there, is there a right way for the church to be operating? Is there a wrong way for the church to be operating? What is the will of the Lord for the church? And so that started this kind of study and this started um, this kind of research that I was doing. And what I decided to do was to go back as far as possible and look at the first generation church, the church that was commissioned by Jesus, and see what did that church look like. And what that church looks like is what our church should look like. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to start in Acts 1. We're going to, um, we're going to hit some, some verses between Acts 1 and Acts 2. Uh, while you're turning there, I want you to think about the game, the the telephone game. Anybody know the game I'm talking about? Where you have like a bunch of kids, or maybe even adults, and standing in a line, and uh, the leader tells the first person a, a keyword or a phrase, and that person turns to the next person and and shares it, and then it just kind of goes all the way down, and then it's just like hu- it's this humorous thing, where you get to see how much that phrase changed, from the first generation uh, conversation to all the way to whether it's the 10th, 11th, 12th, more times than not, the, the phrase is actually indistinguishable from the original. It's something completely different. And what the, the purpose of this, this game is highlighting is the attrition, the, the loss of clarity as a message is passed from generation to generation or from person to person. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because, like, as I said, we're going to go to the beginning And we're going to study the first-generation church. This first-generation church was instituted and commissioned by Jesus himself. And I believe that there's a lot for us to gain by looking at the the beliefs, the practices, the focuses, the priorities of this first-generation church. It's easy for us in today's culture to get so consumed with following trends of today what are, what are the churches in our area doing today? What are my friends doing today? And it's easy to then base our practices based on these changing trends. Which I want to highlight, following trends isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, if you're a business owner... It's good for you to change with the times and to adapt your business practices, your, um, the way that you're engaging with your customers or potential customers with the way that people are engaging with the world, whether that's online. If you were to ask a business uh, 40 years ago if they were focusing on social media advertising, they would have no idea what you're talking about. But now, today, that's a necessity. If you're in a business and you're wanting to acquire new customers, and I think that this also applies to the church as well, to some degree. If anything, COVID showed us that it was necessary for us to change the way that we were doing some things. We were not live streaming before COVID, and now we're in a time where um, live streaming for churches is um, is is almost expected and required. And we, we have now the ability to reach more people online that uh, people who have moved, people in different countries, different, different states. But there's a huge difference between, if we were to compare the, the business, the secular world, to how the church operates as it relates to the chasing after of trends. The original business practices of a business are irrelevant if those practices now no longer apply to the current culture. What that means, Microsoft, we'll just use Microsoft as an example, it's a big company that all of you would, would, uh, would um, know by just saying it. Microsoft could care less how the company originally reached customers. Today, it doesn't matter to them how they used to do something, because the time has changed and their only focus is the acquisition of new customers. They don't care what the original mission statement was. What they care about is the business today and how they can reach more people. They adapt their mission statement and priorities based on the ever-changing culture in which they're in. And this is where we differ. This is where the church differs from business or from any other institution or organization in the world. The structure of the church, its priorities, these were not created arbitrarily for a specific time in history. But these were instituted and commissioned by God himself. And they're timeless. So if our goal, if our goal this morning is to discover what the priority of the church today should be, it's beneficial for us to to break this mold in our study, not to search out the newest information. What's What's the newest hot trend right now? And that's what we need to be doing But in fact, we ought to seek the oldest and therefore closest to Jesus himself direction. Many generations have come and gone since the scriptures were written. And since the church was commissioned by Jesus himself, it's easy for us to base uh, our church policies, practices, off what the church has done over the last 50, 60 years. But we have to, if we want to be intellectually honest, we have to ask ourselves the question, what if... What the church has been doing for the last, I'm not saying it is, but what if what the church has been doing for the last 50, 60 years is different than what the first generation church commissioned by Jesus was told to do? That should prompt change. We should not be so uh, rigidly stuck to our tradition that we miss the commission that Jesus called us to. And this is why it's important. Um, as we'll see in just a moment in our first point this morning, why it's important for us to have church staff, elders, and pastors who are faithfully and prayerfully shepherding the direction of the church in alignment not with the culture that we're in, but in alignment with the direction of Jesus himself, as he demonstrated to the early church. And again, this isn't to say that it's bad for a church to change with the times and culture surrounding it, but at the core level... The mission statement of the church, the focus of the church, the priorities of the church should be in direction and in line with Jesus. And these are timeless calls. I remember writing a, a paper uh, in seminary, and the, the paper was about like uh, the interpretation of Scripture and how to best interpret Scripture and the different practices that we can go through when we're trying to determine how to properly uh, interpret uh, a verse. And basically, one of the, the concepts in this paper was if there is a verse, say I'm reading something from the Apostle Paul, and I see a couple different ways that this passage could be interpreted, how can we determine what tools can we use to determine the, the best or the accurate interpretation of a passage? And obviously, we want to be interpreting scripture with scripture. That's number one. But what next? And this paper was basically, uh, this was the thesis from the professor that I was told to write on, um, is the importance of the early church fathers. And what I mean by that is if I'm reading something from the Apostle Paul and I'm confused as to how to interpret it, and I see a couple different options, A or B, and then I find a writing from someone who studied directly under the Apostle Paul on that passage and that person takes one of the two positions that I'm trying to discover the truth of who would understand the intentions of the apostle paul better than someone who studied directly under the apostle paul so therefore if if the if the conclusion of this student of paul is in line with a scripture interpreting scripture option that's a pretty strong case that that's an accurate Uh, honest interpretation of that passage those who studied under Paul would know Paul's thoughts in the same way is how this applies in the same way those who studied directly under Jesus both before his death and for a 40-day period after his death where he came back on the scene and spent time amongst the disciples teaching them these individuals would have tremendous insight Here in Acts, we see the church established. We as the church should assume that if anyone in the history of this world would have the best understanding of what the church should look like, it's those individuals who were in the first generation church told how they were to act by Jesus. Therefore, we should take seriously what they do. And we see what they do in the book of Acts. We see what they prioritize, and we, as the church today, should seek to emulate it. So let's look here into Luke, um, of what Luke is saying here uh, at the start of Acts. Verse 1 says, and I think we have this on screen for you. Um, in, the, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, after his suffering, he, uh, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So often we, we spend a lot of our focus when we're looking at the the ministry of Jesus. We spend a lot of time focusing on his before death ministry. And then he, we, we read, you know, you know right around, Easter time that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he ascended and is now in heaven. And then we we kind of, we miss a 40 day gap. We miss the point where Jesus did die, but then before ascending, he spent a good chunk of time still on this earth with his disciples teaching them. And I can't can't help but imagine that there's no reason that Jesus would not have just went straight up to heaven if what he had to say during those 40 days was not of significant importance. There's so many like Disney movies and this this concept of like, which this doesn't happen outside of Jesus, but... Um, we we see this illustration a lot of movies nowadays where uh, a a grandparent or some uh, important figure from someone's life who has passed away like returns as like a ghost or something to, to help their children to get through a certain season of their life to encourage them or tell them something that they need. The reason that they stuck around was because they have something important that the listener needs to hear. Well here Jesus stuck around because there was something important that had to be done that there was a specific way it should have been done, and that was the institution of the church. Acts 1-3 tells us that that after this resurrection of Jesus, before his ascension, Jesus spent 40 days instructing the disciples and answering their questions. I gotta think that the disciples had a lot of questions. And then just before Jesus' ascension, in Acts 1.8, Jesus gives one final charge, one final command, one final um, uh, point, something for them to do. Verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and Stockton, California and to the ends of the earth. What he's telling his disciples, that he's telling them their purpose. He's telling them, this is what you are now to be, forever. You're my witnesses, not just in the city you're in, but for the entire world. He said to go out and be his witness in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. This statement made in Acts 1.8, this should be the foundation of every church's mission statement. This is the purpose and the reason the church was instituted by God. He says, you'll be my witness to the ends of the earth. If we are not living our faith out in a way that it is impacting those around us, we are missing the point. We're missing something huge. So outside of this charge to be a witness to all the world, what else can we learn from this early church? those directly commissioned by Jesus. I see three things that I wanna highlight for us pretty quickly this morning. The three things that I see is first, they prayed. Second, that they were spirit-filled. And thirdly, that they preached effectively. So if we just look at these one at a time, first, we'll start in verse 12 of chapter one, uh, they prayed. They were a prayerful people. They prioritized seeking God. Verse 12 says this, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, uh, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Whole gang's there. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. If we back up just a little bit, we see what they're praying about. This is the apostles. They've, they've all returned from Jerusalem and are basically now faced with a, an important task. The task of figuring out who is going to fill the now open, vacant position that was vacated by Judas who betrayed Jesus. This is them seeking God and guidance through prayer, trying to figure out who is the person that God wants to fill this spot. And this kind of instinct to prayer, it demonstrates a few things. Notice how they didn't try and, uh, you know, draw straws They weren't sitting around, they didn't like pull out job resumes or, you know, applications and they they didn't try and determine who they thought was going to be the best fit with the personalities already on the team. They didn't, they weren't trying to assess it themselves. The first thing they did was seek God in prayer and it demonstrates their awareness of their need for God. They didn't even begin to start trying to come up with a plan without first going to God. And I don't, I don't know if this is convicting for you, but this is convicting for me. So many times I find myself in situations where I'm in the middle of something and I realize I haven't even brought this to the Lord. Has anyone ever been guilty of that? Or am I the only one in the room? It's not that I don't want God's help. It's not even that I don't think that I know that I need God's help. Oftentimes, I'm running through life so fast, just one thing after the next, it's really easy to not slow down enough to even pray. How backwards thinking is this? We can be so overwhelmed with circumstances of life that we think that if I let up off the gas, even just for a moment, I'm going I'm to drown in the water that I'm in. I'm so busy treading water. I'm so busy treading water that I think that if I stop long enough to catch the life, life raft next to me that I'm going to drown. And I'll be honest, I was really convicted while preparing this message because I was probably like a good solid two and a half days into preparing for this morning. I had just come back from a week-long mission trip when was with, with a bunch of high school students, so I was absolutely exhausted. The day I got back, I... Um, was uh, I I preached uh, Quail's evening service. The day before I left, we had a Go project. So I was absolutely at the, the, the end of my physical strength, my mental strength, and I sat down to start preparing a message for you guys this morning. Several days in, and then I had this moment where I got to what I saw God bringing me to for this point, and I was I haven't even prayed about this message. I'm sitting here preparing a message to tell you guys that we need to be praying first. And I was like, okay, I've got to take the rest of the day off. I need to go spend some time because this ain't happening. But this is all too common. It's all too common for prayer to be our last resort when you get fired from your job, when, when circumstances of life have you down, it's time to go to the one who can help. And we completely forget about the fact that we see constantly throughout Scripture, prayer is our first effort, not our last effort. And this is what we see on the part of the early church. We see the early church do amazing things. We see them persevere through intense persecution. They brought the gospel to the corners of the globe. And if we want to be effective like they were, we need to be in prayer like they were. They knew that their effectiveness was not based on their ability but in the God that they were serving. They knew that if they wanted to do something amazing, they needed to ask the one who could do something amazing. Which leads me to my second point, that they were spirit-filled people. Chapter 2, verse 2. When the day of Pentecost came and they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, the tongues, uh, in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The passage continues to explain what this, this whole speaking in tongues thing is all about. And basically what happened was there was a lot of people around them outside of the church who spoke a lot of languages that they didn't know. This whole Jesus mov- movement was starting to kind of catch on. People were interested. They were wanting some information. They were wanting uh, questions answered. So they went to this place where the, the disciples were. But they couldn't effectively communicate with all these different uh, um, ethnicities and these, these cultures outside the church. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God performed a miracle and allowed these individuals to speak in languages that they had not studied, that they did not know, in order to effectively communicate the gospel message and save individuals. It would be like if any person, I'm a a one language person, I know know English, barely. But it'd be like if a a Japanese person came in this room right now and I could tell that they were broken hearted and needed the hope of Jesus, how can I communicate the truth of the gospel to someone that I can't communicate with? And the Holy Spirit in me performs a miracle and allows me to effectively communicate to this individual the truth of Jesus Christ, that there is hope for this individual. In fluent Japanese, that would be a miracle. That's what happened. And what we should take away from this, in conjunction with our last point, is that the power of God is limitless. What can be accomplished through God is limitless, and that, that there that there's a friend or a family in your life who is running full speed away from God. That friend, that family member, is not more powerful than God. And if they're not more powerful than God, then they're not more powerful than God working through you. Each and every one of us here this morning who has a relationship with Jesus Christ is filled with the Spirit. And we can be vessels of the miraculous through the working of the Spirit within us. Ephesians 1, 13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I don't believe the issue here, as it relates to us speaking generally here, is that we are less Spirit-filled. I don't think that the Spirit inhabits partially. I believe that the Spirit inhabits us fully when we believe, because that's what Scripture says. I don't believe that the Spirit leaves us partially during dry seasons. The issue is that we are not utilizing the Spirit that is already fully present within us. So our challenge, we shouldn't be praying for spirit, come into me more. And we hear this in a lot of worship songs and, you know, but I just want more of the spirit. The spirit is in us. The question is, is, am I utilizing the spirit that's in it or am I trying to do these things on Brandon's strength? I got this one. I don't even need to go to prayer over it. I'm pretty sure I can handle this. We are operating within our own strengths. And I just wonder, and this is going to be different for all of us, and you know, don't, don't shout it out too loud, but I wonder what things you may be going through here this morning, right now, that you're trying to resolve on your own. The disciples knew that their power was from the Lord, and, and they used him first. And we see this in the way that they were able to effectively communicate the gospel message. We see that they, this is our third point, they preached effectively. Verse 14, uh, then this chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the, um, with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all, who, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. He's about to defend the kind of craziness that they're seeing happening with all these people speaking a bunch of languages that they don't know. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Which I find this kind of funny. He's like, it's only nine in the morning. It's nine in the morning. These people are not drunk. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he continues on for about 25 verses. And basically delivers a message, a sermon. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 40. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them. He said, "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their number that day. When believers take the message of their faith out to the streets and share with others, they do so not by trusting in their own ability. Or I, I, let me say this: that you shouldn't do this in an effort to uh, trust in their own ability, but in knowledge that by trusting in the Holy Spirit and the promise of God, that is effective. In communicating the gospel message. When Peter stood up and preached this day, I don't believe that he had like an outline and notes prepared and these different points that he wanted to hit. He got up and shared what he knew as the truth of the gospel and the impact that Jesus has on our lives. And the result, the scriptures record 3,000 people were baptized that day. And this, this will be different for each of us, but I want us to silently reflect on the routines of our life. I know how easy it is for us to get so busy that days just start flying by. But is, is me sharing the truth of the goodness of God with others a regular part of my life? Not that there's, there's gonna be days that go by that doesn't happen, but, but is me sharing the truth of what God has done in my life and can do in your life Is this a regular part of my life, sharing the hope that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, sharing the warning that we see Peter share here? He said he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Lives are on the line. There is a battle and God has commissioned the church to be the vehicle of preparing and mobilizing us individuals to fight this war. That's what we're here for. The war will continue whether we choose to engage or not. Satan's not going to let up when he sees that we're not actively witnessing, that we're not trying to save individuals. Satan is going to push the gas down even further and go, these guys are asleep, this is my time. And I understand the fear that can come from evangelism, but if we ask ourselves, what's the source We've probably all been in a situation where we felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go talk to somebody and you're thinking like, I physically, my mouth won't move. I can't do it. I can't go talk to somebody that I don't know. That sounds terrifying. What if they laugh at me? What if they reject me? I've been rejected my whole life. This is just going to affirm everything that I know about myself. Where does this fear come from? Is the Holy Spirit in you bringing about fear which is going to lead you to not accomplishing the very thing that the Spirit is calling you to do? No. The fear is a snare of Satan who wants us to be fearful lest we share boldly through not our power but the power of the Spirit and save many. The challenge for us this morning is this. We already believe. Most of us, I hope. If you don't believe, today's the day. Uh, There's a battle for your soul. Turn and believe. There's no other hope for your life than a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is freely offered to you right now. Don't walk one more day thinking that you can save yourself because you can't. Or that you aren't desperately in need of Jesus Christ as your Savior. Too many times I've heard, I'm doing just fine on my own. No, you're not. Every one of us is desperately hopeless without Jesus. And today you can begin that relationship. I would encourage you, if that's you, we'll have prayer counselors this morning and we have them every Sunday. Uh, They would love to, to talk with you and to pray for you at the conclusion of this service. But for those of us already walking alongside Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's time for us to take our faith to the streets, to this city. I've gone on two short-term mission trips in the last month. Not two months. Which were both awesome, they were amazing, and we saw amazing kingdom work done But I tell you what, we are living in a bountiful mission field right now. Stockton is a city that is hurting with drugs, violence, addiction, depression, anxiety, and we have the solution to all of these things. And it's living within us. I pray this morning that we see the church rise up and become an unstoppable force, a force of encouragement, a vessel of hope for the broken, and that through God's people, God's people would multiply. We know the call upon our life. We know what we're here to do. We're not here to build our best life. We're here to save people so that way they can live their best life, not in this life, but in the one to come. Is anyone else ready this week to share the gospel with someone? Because I know I am. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one. All right. Let me pray. Let me me pray for us. Dear God, I pray that we, as your church, as your body, as the tool that you've commissioned to go into this world, Lord, I, I fear that we are apathetic. I fear that we're lazy. I fear that we think someone else will do it. Lord, we're already too busy. Lord, shame on us. Shame on us because we've missed the point of what our day's supposed to be about. Lord, convict us, challenge us, light a fire inside of us. Lord, we don't need more of the Spirit. We have the Spirit in us. Lord, I pray that we Utilize the spirit. And that we don't try and walk day to day on our own strength. But that we understand that we are um, aimless. That we are ineffective. That we can't walk through this life and accomplish what you've called us to accomplish. Without us surrendering our pride to you daily. Seeking your strength. Lord, I pray that, um, that this week will be a week. Lord, I, I pray that you present us this week with an opportunity to share the truth of who you are to someone. And I believe that you're going to give us that opportunity. So Lord, I pray now for uh, a, a courageous a boldness on our uh, on the part of every individual in this room. And that when, when that opportunity comes, that they would... Um, seek your will, your strength, and that this week would be a week of witnessing as you've called the church to do, to be your witness to all people at all times. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.